Hello everyone, my name is Drew Ray and this is episode 55 of Disastercast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. To begin this episode, let's go back to a topic we've touched on a little before. This is a podcast about disasters, so what exactly makes an accident worthy of being called a disaster? Death is a normal, everyday consequence of life, and yet some tragic events have much greater social significance than others. To me, the defining characteristic of disaster is a catastrophic realignment of belief with reality. Disasters don't just change the world, they change the way we think about the world. After a disaster, we wake up to find that not only is the world differently worse, but it was never quite as good as we thought it was. Have you ever had that sick feeling of disappointment when a surprise election result was announced? When you ask someone out on a date and they say no? Or you didn't get a job or an award you really expected was yours? This disappointment is the smaller cousin of disaster. It looks backwards as well as forwards. We ask ourselves, why did we get our hopes up? What signs or signals did we misread? We wish we could go backwards in time because we would have done things differently if only we'd known we were supposed to do them differently. Nuclear accidents are a great example of disasters. They are landmark events not because they're particularly extreme, but because we've been taught to believe they are unthinkable. Aircraft crashes paradoxically become bigger disasters the safer air travel becomes, precisely because they're now such surprising, belief-changing events. The heart of disappointment or disaster is false belief. If we didn't believe so strongly that things were going to turn out okay, we might have been able to stop the bad thing happening. Or at the very least, we wouldn't be so devastated because we knew what to expect. The quest for safety scientists is to explain how people, organisations and communities come to have these false beliefs about safety. What leads us to be scared of things that are unlikely ever to hurt us, and yet confident in the safety of things that are truly dangerous. The challenge in turn for designers, operators, and managers of potentially hazardous systems is to help people have truer beliefs about safety. This is difficult in a social and regulatory environment where we're constantly asked to convince people that we're managing safely correctly. In fact, it's possible that we've refined the art of demonstrating safety to the point where we've lost the ability to update our own beliefs in the light of new evidence. The accident I'm going to discuss today is the Esso gas plant explosion at Longford, Victoria. A lot of my material is from a book by Andrew Hopkins called Lessons from Longford. As will become obvious, I'm not a fan of my own source material for this episode. Hopkins, a sociologist, is proud of the influence he had on the Royal Commission into the accident. He pseudo-humbly invites readers to form their own judgement about the value of sociology for understanding accidents. My personal opinion is that Lessons from Longford illustrates the dangers of failing to apply sociology to understanding accidents. Hopkins compares Longford to the Maurer coal mine disaster, about which he also wrote an expensive book. He says... In both cases, there were warning signs which management ignored, communication failures, systematic lack of attention to major hazards, auditing failures, 
and a failure to learn from previous experience. As we go through this accident, I want you to pay close attention to just how Hopkins is applying labels that only have meaning in hindsight. They do nothing to explain how false beliefs are constructed. A so-called warning sign is not a warning sign if no one recognises it. A so-called communication failure doesn't mean that the people involved had their hands over their ears. It means that they were busy talking about other things and listening to other people. A so-called systematic lack of attention doesn't mean that people were blind. It means they were looking at other stuff, other stuff that they thought was more important. Auditing failures means that audits failed to achieve their intended purpose. But it says nothing about whether audits were ever capable of achieving what Hopkins in hindsight wants them to have achieved, or what the management of the plant thought that audits were able to reveal. And failure to learn from previous experience is, frankly, what everyone says every time an accident happens. If we can learn anything from previous experience... It's that accusing others of failing to learn from previous experience is markedly unhelpful advice. Maybe Hopkins should have learned that from his previous books. When he isn't trying to explain accidents, I'm usually a big, big fan of Andrew Hopkins. He's written some really insightful critiques of safety culture, and he almost single-handedly started the modern debate about leading indicators. His accident analyses, though, don't apply the discipline of sociological thought that the field deserves. Hopkins has this idea that accidents are practically preventable. He agrees that for operators, the accident was unexpected, unpredictable, and a result of technological complexity beyond their comprehension. Yet he argues that for the organisation, a system that as a sociologist he should know is vastly more complicated than the technical system, the accident was foreseeable, and preventable. An accident like Longsford, though, also calls into question the usefulness of modern safety ideas that deny the usefulness of human error as a concept, and focus on workers as the primary source of knowledge about safety at work. Longford did involve human actions that, while they made perfect sense to the operators at the time, were catastrophically misaligned with the physical reality they were dealing with. I've got very little sympathy for anyone who wants to blame the operators, but I do fully understand why many people would describe Longford as an accident involving human error. Let's get started. Raw natural gas is a mix of hydrocarbons. Different hydrocarbons have different uses, so one of the first steps in processing is to separate the raw gas out into its principal components. Each hydrocarbon has a different boiling point, so most separation mechanisms involve some form of distillation, where the mixture is at just the right temperature to separate out the lightest component as a gas, keeping everything else as a liquid. Gas plant 1 at Longford was a refrigerated lean oil absorption plant. This is a slightly old-fashioned way of removing the useful hydrocarbons from a raw stream of natural gas. They do it by flowing the raw gas over a stream of oil that they call lean oil. This lean oil absorbs the light hydrocarbons from the gas, and it leaves behind all the stuff that isn't useful for the moment. The lean oil, when it absorbs this stuff, gets called enriched oil. The enriched oil then gets warmed up in a new place, 
which releases the useful hydrocarbons again. When you have a plant where some bits need to be really cold and other bits need to be hot, it's much more efficient to use heat exchangers to shift the energy around, instead of trying to separately warm up or cool down the different units. But this makes the whole process complicated and interdependent. You need the hot oil at the right temperature flowing at the right rate to warm up the cold bits, and you need the cold oil at the right temperature and speed to cool down the hot bits. Otherwise, parts of the plant get too hot or too cold. And because everything's flowing around all the time, instead of just sitting in tanks getting warmed up or cooled down, every part of the system is at a slightly different temperature. And just to make things even trickier, remember that heat and pressure are interdependent. When gas expands, it cools down. When it compresses, it heats up. When it gets heated, it increases in pressure. And when it gets cooled, it decreases in pressure. All the metal pipes also expand and contract as they get hot and cold. So if you've got things at the wrong temperature, they can leak. On 25th of September, 1998, the date of the accident, there was an unusual mixture of gas coming into gas plant one. This unusual mixture ultimately resulted in the shutdown of two of the pumps used to circulate warm oil. Now, I don't think the precise reasons for the shutdown are important for understanding the accident. The plant involved a mix of automated systems and human-controlled valves, and the Royal Commission report into the accident contains dozens upon dozens of pages of tedious reconstruction of the exact valve positions and automation outputs. The one thing that these pages make totally clear to me is that the operation of the plant was very hard to understand, even in hindsight. Attempts to restart the pumps that had shut down were unsuccessful. After a cascade of further effects that are also impossible to explain without a piping and instrumentation diagram, and impossible to work out without months of analysis and simulation after the accident, part of the plant got really cold. And by cold, I mean it was normally 100 degrees Celsius, and it got down to minus 48 degrees Celsius. For American listeners, that's... Well, fortunately, 48 degrees minus is pretty much the same in Celsius and Fahrenheit. The cold spot was in a unit called Absorber B. Temperature control in the absorbers was important for recovering as much of the hydrocarbons as possible, and temperature control of Absorber B had been a problem for a while. Earlier in the year, one of the temperature control valves wouldn't close properly, and that had been fixed, but a few weeks before the accident it started misbehaving again. Attempts were made to repair the valve in place without success, and so it was scheduled for a much more detailed attempt to fix it. There was a bypass for the valve, and there was a bit of a tug-of-war between supervisors as to whether the bypass was best left open or left closed. These problems with the temperature control valve are just part of the overall complex picture, but they'd later form part of the argument that the accident was foreseeable. So the pumps have shut down, and part of the plants got very cold. And this cold in turn caused other problems. For example, there was ice that started forming on the outside of the pipes. And there were leaks in one of the units as the metal contracted. The operators were pretty worried by these leaks, so they shut the plant down. And once having it shut down, they thought that they had things safely contained. Their big concern, though, was that they had a large and potentially reportable quantity of leaked oil which is a pretty serious environmental problem, 
and the leak hadn't stopped. The oil was still flowing. So in an effort to solve this problem, they restarted some pumps that would circulate warm oil, hopefully heat up the tank a little bit and stop the leaks. But the warm oil hit the minus 48 degree metal and the metal shattered. Don't try this at home, but if you pour boiling water into a frozen metal container, the effects are somewhat impressive and quite destructive. Regular listeners of DisasterCast, can I still call you regular listeners if DisasterCast isn't itself regular? Well, you know what's coming next. Between 20 and 25 tonnes of hydrocarbon formed a giant vapour cloud, which drifted downwind looking for an ignition source. And it's one of those laws of the universe that giant vapour clouds looking for ignition sources eventually find them. The cloud took about two minutes to travel 200 metres to some gas-fired heaters. I'm told that technically there wasn't an explosion, just a thing called a deflagration, a subsonic flame front moving rapidly through the vapour cloud back to the absorption tank, which then burned for two days. I'm also pretty sure that the people who were killed didn't care whether it was an explosion or a subsonic flame front. One of the people killed was the plant manager, who was also the designated emergency response controller. He was therefore unable to consult the Emergency Preparedness System Manual, the Emergency Response Manual, or the Emergency Response Support Data Manual. These guys had no shortage of safety systems. Full marks to his secretary, though, who, recognising that she was the only person left in the office, contacted emergency services and took over running the emergency response procedure room. One of the reasons the fire took so long to put out was that it was extremely difficult to isolate the supply of fuel to the fire. Gas Plant 1 had been originally designed as the continuously operating supply of natural gas to all of Victoria. It was, by design, supposed to be very hard to stop it supplying gas. The introduction of two further plants that were eventually built, Gas Plant 2 and Gas Plant 3, reduced the dependency on Gas Plant 1, but that really only made the whole situation more complicated to try to deal with. Teams of engineers were busy working trying to find which pipes to cut or close off the supply of gas. They were then working under cover of water vapour clouds to try to hunt round and find the right pipes amidst the damaged plant in order to cut them. Meanwhile, there's other teams working out how to maintain a continuous supply of water to contain the fire, as the various tanks keep running dry of water as they try to fight the fire. The difficulty in isolation meant that even after the fire was out, gas plants 2 and 3 couldn't be immediately restarted. And so for over two weeks, the state of Victoria had no gas supply. That's lots of homes without hot water or cooking, and an estimated $1.3 billion of lost industry production. So, those are the basic facts. A complicated balancing act of automation and manual control got things a bit wrong, and two pumps shut down. The shutdown pumps meant that part of the plant got really cold and started to leak. To stop the leak, the operators restarted part of the plant, and the combination of hot and cold caused a massive leak, a deflagration, and a fire that was very hard to put out. Let's talk about the causes. To start with, I think we need to recognise that the events that physically caused the accident were the stalled pumps and the introduction of warm oil afterwards. 
we can accept these as physical causes without any assignment of blame. The events wouldn't have happened in the same way in a world where the plant was designed differently, where the operators acted differently, or where the laws of physics were different. Those are all fairly useless counterfactuals, though, unless they offer us solutions that we can act on. Andrew Hopkins suggests that both the plant design and the operator actions would and should have been different if only the organisation had done the right things. His first concern is that ESO could have done more to identify hazards. One of the central claims Hopkins makes is that a particular safety analysis technique called a hazard and operability study, or HAZOP, was not conducted for gas plant one. HAZOP is an expensive technique because it requires co-location of a team of people for days or weeks to trace every flow through a system and to consider every way that flow can be disrupted. It's a technique that generates a large number of potential issues, each one of which needs to be individually considered to see whether it's actually something that can and should be further mitigated. Hopkins' argument is based on a couple of engineers after the accident claiming that if they had performed the analysis, they would have spotted the issue and they would have considered important, amongst all the other potential issues, to take extra steps to mediate. During the inquiry, Esso quite rightly pointed out that there's no reason to believe that this would have been the case. Regardless of its merits as a tool for helping design systems, efficacy that's never really been tested in properly controlled comparative studies, there's no evidence that HAZOP is a good tool for retrospective safety analysis. In fact, it's well known that retrospective safety analysis very seldom leads to significant safety improvements. You can't argue on the one hand that safety analysis is most effective when conducted early in the design process, without on the other hand also acknowledging that if you conduct safety analysis on an already built plant, there's not a lot you can do. ESSO was 100% right to argue that their time, attention and money was better spent addressing issues that had already been identified than on conducting further safety analysis. It's only in hindsight that someone can claim they were paying attention to the wrong things. Even if HAZOP had been conducted, and even if it had identified the precise cause of the accident, it could have not told the managers or engineers that one particular entry in a table with hundreds of entries, was the issue that they should focus on fixing. Hopkins says that ESO was just defending the lack of a HAZOP because they wanted to mi minimise the significance of their own failure. This is the logical fallacy of attacking the motive pre for presenting an argument rather than considering the worth of the argument. ESO can be covering their backs and still be right about the HAZOP. Even if a HAZOP should have been performed, Understanding ESO's reasons for not performing the HAZOP is essential for understanding the accident. We need to listen and understand their reasons, not just dismiss them. ESO certainly didn't decide not to carry out a HAZOP just to give themselves future ammunition to blame an operator for an accident that could have been prevented if they'd done the HAZOP. That wouldn't be cynical evil. That would be Dr. Evil and Mr. Burns mixed with Blackadder and Donald Trump Jr. levels of stupid evil. Hopkins asserts that a HAZOP would have led to better procedures and training specific to the accident sequence. Hopkins asserts that an analysis of plant interdependency at the time gas plants 2 and 3 were built would have resulted in a design where gas plant 1 could blow up 
without interrupting the gas supply to Victoria through plants 2 and 3. Hopkins has a remarkable faith in the ability of safety analysis to miraculously realign priorities based on the things that are most important in hindsight. If Victoria had lost its gas supply because it was possible to accidentally isolate the gas plant with a single faulty valve, does that mean that safety analysis would have told operators to make sure the plant was hard to isolate? If terrorists had interrupted the gas supply, does that mean that safety analysis would have made sure the information on how to isolate the plant was carefully hidden where no one could find it? If the gas supply was interrupted because some of plant 1 was working and some of plant 2 was working, but it was impossible to connect them, does that mean that safety analysis would have ensured the plants were closely interconnected? If the oil spill had killed the last surviving population of Victorian fairy penguins, does that mean that the safety analysis would have ensured that the procedures encouraged putting warm oil back into the tanks to stop the leaks as early as possible? See how this game works? Once you know what the disaster was, it's easy to think that the analysis should not just have predicted it, but that the company should have devoted all of their attention to fixing it. Most safety analysis most of the time, doesn't result in any significant change to the system or the decision the analysis relates to. Retrospective safety analysis in particular is notorious for this. Hopkins' second target is having full compliance with safety management systems. To be fair, he doesn't make the mistake of thinking that informal practices should be rigidly brought back in line with formal specifications. He recognises that it's an almost universal phenomenon that operators quickly develop informal practices to deal with shortfalls in the formal process. However, he thinks that we should fix this. His exemplar is the shining city on the hill that is Diablo Canyon, where modifying the rules was regarded as a full-time job, and where there was a full-time staff of 20 procedure writers. Oddly enough, yes, if you spend an absolute fortune on constantly updating your procedures to match how work is performed, the procedures will be a nearly perfect reflection of the work. But what's the purpose of the procedures then? You don't gain anything either by forcing workers to follow procedures or by forcing procedures to follow the work. Back in the 1960s, a sociologist called Katz recognised the fundamental contradiction between dependable role performance and spontaneous behaviour. We want workers to engage in behaviours beyond and contradictory to our procedures. We want workers to also recognise when the procedures don't apply and to stop. You can't specify in a procedure all the circumstances when the procedure doesn't work. You need someone with a human brain to recognise these situations. We want workers to cooperate. We want them to help each other out and to seek help when they need it. And yes, we also want to specify a minimum set of actions and standards necessary to get the job done safely. These shouldn't blow in the wind updated to match whatever the workers are currently doing. But by definition, we can't work out in advance when the workers should or shouldn't follow the procedure. If we knew when the procedure would turn out to be wrong, we'd just fix it in advance. For a sociologist, Hopkins also has incredible faith in the magical powers of engineers. And yes, as an engineer myself... I'll admit, we do have a certain degree of mystical mastery over the darker fortunes of nature. Computers that have been bugging you all day will suddenly start working when you try to show us the problem. Sticky valves become unstuck when we wiggle our fingers. And flaky machinery starts to operate smoothly when we profess the exact same sequence of buttons you swear you just pressed. Engineers, yes, do have magic powers. 
but we also have our limits. What we can't do is use our big brains to replace the lived expertise of the people who use our systems. According to ESSO, they moved most of their engineers off-site because they found that the engineers were basically just looking over the shoulders of the people who actually knew how the system worked. According to Hopkins, it was a cost-cutting measure that caused ESSO to miss its chance to function as a high-reliability organisation. Now, I don't want to sound either like I'm defending ESSO or slamming Hopkins here. What Hopkins wanted was, to quote one of the expert witnesses, an engineer out on the plant following the shift, basically crawling through the pipes, getting a complete and full understanding of the operations of the totality of the particular plant. Now, if you add to that a little bit of listening to the operators, that's pretty much my description of a great operations engineer. And it doesn't sound like ESO had in place good arrangements, either formally or informally, for sharing knowledge. So there was a pretty large gap between the plant as specified the plant as understood by the engineers, the plant as understood by the operators, and the plant as it actually worked. None of those things lined up, and they're tragic gaps in understanding. It would be really nice if those gaps didn't exist. But preventing such gaps is the holy grail of safety science. What we do know is that the gap between work as done and work as imagined doesn't get fixed by throwing money at formal management systems or by adding on-site engineers. The fact is, these are really challenging problems that a lot of smart people have been trying to solve for a long time. Safety cases are a great idea, but safety case regulatory regimes seem to switch focus from improving safety to pleasing the regulator. Safety management systems are a great idea, but in practice always degenerate to an institutionalised gap between workers done and workers imagined. Hazard analysis is a great idea, except for all the times it leads us to focus on what turn out to be the wrong hazards. Hopkins, like so many students of accidents, can see the problems clearly, but is naive about the solutions. It's not enough to say, well, the people who had accidents despite doing what I say must have been doing it wrong. The one lesson you can reliably learn from the history of accidents is that humanity is very good at believing we've explained the past, only to find our knowledge inadequate to prevent the future. That's not a very palatable lesson, is it? If you enjoy this podcast, please tell your friends that DisasterCast is back. It turns out one of the advantages of working for a school of humanities is that we have our own radio studio, so I should be able to record regularly from now on. If you're using DisasterCast as a teaching resource, though, please contact me directly and I'll make sure you've got direct access to the audio and transcripts in case of um, future technical difficulties. If you want to help cover the cost of the new, more reliable hosting service, please subscribe on patreon.com slash disastercast. For as little as a dollar an episode, you can support the show and bribe me to produce more episodes. Links and show notes are on disastercast.co.uk, and for questions and suggestions for the next episode, email me at feedback at disastercast.co.uk. Till next time, keep safe.